0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I have an absolute treat for you today. I don't know how I ended up lucky enough to become friends with such wonderful people, but this is one of those wonderful people in my field who I really count as a friend and I have tremendous respect for. The person we're going to be talking to today is Dr. Christine Courtois. And Christine is someone whose work I have been studying since I was in graduate school. I know that's something she doesn't want to hear, but I went to graduate school late. It was a second career. But nonetheless, When I started looking at trauma and sexual issues and addiction and what were the trauma therapists talking about in relationship to addiction, my work turned to looking at Christine Courtois. And I want to say a little bit about her from my knowledge about her. I've spent a couple of years on the road teaching and lecturing with Christine, so I can say that as a person, she is a gentle, powerful spirit. But as a professional, she is someone who's really been... um, Ahead of everyone, and, and I mean that as a woman and as a researcher, she was out there in the 1970s and the early 80s, looking at uh, rape in women and how did that affect the rest of their lifespan? At sexual abuse in children, and did that have anything to do with how they acted later in life? Christine is really the first, one of the first people, along with John Briere and Bessel van der and a couple of really extraordinary trauma professionals who created the field of modern trauma therapy, and so. As you know, we talk so much here about addiction and its relationship to early complex trauma, and the person that I point to as being the leader of that field, or one of the main evolutionaries in that field, is Dr. Christine Courtois. Welcome, Christine. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for that nice introduction, Rob, and you know, it's been wonderful to get to know you over the past couple of years as well, and to be on the road with you and co-present and co-write, so I think we're kindred spirits in a lot of ways.
0: Well, you know, the first, one of the first times I met you, you put a big smile on my face. Cause I listened to your lecture very carefully. And I asked, I, w- I didn't ask you, but you were going through the stages of trauma treatment. And I knew that you were in the trauma world and I was in the addiction world and they're a bit different. And so what you said just thrilled me. You said the first stage and the first step of trauma treatment is safety. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because that's the first step of addiction treatment is safety. You know, make sure they're not drinking and driving. Make sure they're not sexing and, you know, unsafely, all of that. Um, And I thought, wow, maybe these trauma and addiction things, maybe they have something to do with each other. And the more we talked, the more we learned from each other. And uh, I'm so impressed with how much you really have been thoughtful about this issue for a long time. So maybe you could tell me, because to me, it feels like a bit of a disconnect between the trauma world and the addiction world. I don't think you look at it that way, but it feels that way. Can you help me understand that a little bit?
1: Oh, I definitely look at it that way. You know, I, I think the uh, it's a little bit of a hackneyed term, but I think saying that there've been two separate silos for years is an appropriate and good way of looking at it, and that those silos are not yet down. I think that we're making progress in helping you know, addiction professionals understand the trauma history that is usually there. And I think on the other hand, we're helping trauma professionals understand that the addictions play an enormous role in child abuse and complex trauma. um, And then subsequently, and that the addiction needs to be co-addressed with the trauma. (laughs) But it's a message that hasn't gotten to the professionals on both sides yet.
0: And as a result, then we have trauma professionals who may be treating people to look at deep trauma when they haven't really been able to even emotionally contain themselves enough to not to stop drinking or to stop gambling or whatever it is that they're doing, which undermines their trauma healing. Right.
1: Absolutely. Um, And also something that i found, Rob, that I'm sure you do as well is they do not understand by and large the intergenerational role of uh, substance abuse of all sorts Mm. Um, and my early research and subsequent research shows that, you know, addiction is a potentiator of it's traumatic in and of itself, especially right. if, if it's parents are, who are addicted, but it's a potentiator of violence in a family or neglect in a family or both um, and sexual abuse in particular. And we often just dismiss that. I've, I've had colleagues say to me, you know, oh, this person has PTSD. But when I look at their history, there's no trauma, except that they had one or two parents who were (laughs) addicted. And it's like, how can you not consider that to be traumatic? Uh,
0: You mean my dad drank like a fish. He was bringing women into the house when my mom wasn't looking. I watched it all happen. And then he used to slap me around if I caught him, but I don't have trauma. (laughs) Right, My dad just drank.
1: Or once I've mentioned those examples in my in my workshops, people will come up to me and say, well, you know, I thought it was traumatic when, I'm, you know, my dad or mom was driving drunk in the car and we were sitting there just absolutely terrified. And we'd go for these, you know, long drunken drives. So, I mean, they identified all kinds of things that were going on that would be considered to be traumatic and
0: terrifying. And it's funny you say that because I'm just thinking how I feel every time my husband gets behind the wheel. Uh, and, you know, he's not a terrible driver, but I'm controlling enough to feel anxious and I'm sitting on my hands and I'm not trying to, start to say anything and I'm looking something out the window, you know, because I'm trying not to be anxious about his driving or control it. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, what's it like to sit with a drunk parent for three hours when they're driving all over the road? You must be terrified for hours sitting in the back seat. Right. And then your mom is terrified too or yelling at him or, and that all is going on for hours, that tension, that discomfort, all of that.
1: Mm-hmm. I think you're making a really good point, too, to make a distinction between with your husband, you've got stress, but with a circumstance with a drunk parent or two drunk parents or a drunk and angry parent, um, you've got traumatic stress.
0: And not and only that, but, but with my husband, I have choice. I can say, you know, I'm, done, I'm not getting in the car with you or I'm going to drive. Yeah. But you also, as a child, don't have choice.
1: I was just going to say that. We, you know, another thing that gets dismissed is the entrapment of children. Mm -hmm. And their dependency, and you know how they cannot easily resist or say no.
0: You know it's it's so interesting to me that our fields. Well, when let me explain to you folks out there. When Doctor Courtois talks about silos, um, what she means, she's not kidding. I mean, when we are paid in our community agencies, for example, the money that comes from the government that pays for mental health it goes to a completely different pot than the money that pays for addiction, even though we're pretty much at the point where we understand that addiction is a part of the mental health field. And we've professionalized the addiction field with a lot of mental health support and with mental health workers who understand addiction or actually are addicts themselves. So we've gotten past the original reasons why the fields were so separate. Now we're just still dealing with the result of it, which people somehow think they should be. (laughs) Um, how has this affected your work, Dr. Courtois? Because when I met you, you you weren't as addiction-focused as I think, or at least as addiction-mindful, perhaps, as you are now.
1: I think that's true. Well, there was lack of training, for one. Um, you know, and we could say that both about trauma and, um, and addictions. But my training happened many years ago, as you know, and addiction was just not mentioned. And then when I went looking for um, information on trauma in addictions or addictions and trauma, there was very little at the time. And I think I've stayed on top of what came out pretty well, but I also not being trained in addiction medicine or as an addictionologist, I think I miss quite a bit with my clients. And I don't think I'm much different than a lot of professionals because we, we just don't see it unless we're trained to see it. And then you have What I think is an additional problem in denial is that, for example, I enjoy a drink, so I assume that, and I don't have a drinking problem, and I know the distinctions between drinking problems, but I think I've heard on um, the side of assuming that my clients drink responsibly or do things mostly responsibly, and I think I've learned a lot uh, different about that.
0: It's so fascinating you say that, Dr. Courtois, because I think about all of the trauma clients that I've served who are so ashamed or afraid to tell me things about themselves because they think I'll judge them. Mm-hmm. And to them, there's such huge things because they have so much shame. But to me, it's like, well, okay, you do that. I, I can understand that. Right. And I, I think that this falls into that, that a lot of trauma therapists don't think, oh, this person might be hiding an addiction, not just hiding that they compulsively you know, uh, hit themselves or cut on themselves or other things that trauma survivors can be shameful about.
1: Right, right. And I don't think we've had good training in assessing um, addiction. Well,
0: And when I, when you say you, I mean, the entire, there isn't anything in primary master's level education nationally that teaches us about addiction, or I will say human sexuality, the two areas that I see the most absent in our education, and then trauma, mm-hmm. probably number three.
1: I agree. And, and part of my focus of my work over the years has been to expand knowledge about trauma. Um, And now, you know, there are these whole areas that really need to be addressed as well. And I think in the field and, you know, in the trenches, there's becoming more awareness. But on the other side, I think we could say, in addition, professionals, some of them don't um, want to go after trauma because they might have their own history, might touch on that. And so, you know, they may want to deny it or keep it apart. And they don't go after that history. So I think it's on it's on both sides and not just on one side.
0: But you know what? I don't think there are any sides. Uh, just to say it, I think we're all trying to to have the same goal, which is to help people heal and, and get back to their lives. I think it's more a lack of education. You know, addiction people are just trained addiction, addiction, addiction. A lot of them are not master's level people. A lot of them don't know a lot about trauma. A lot of them are not trained, nor would they be able to handle trauma if they were presented with it. So you know, addictions have never really been treated as a, profession, a mental health profession. They've always been a second stepchild. Right. So we've had non-master's level and non- uh, and people, you know, wonderful, loving people in 12 step recovery, who've gotten a year's worth of training and they got sober and they can get someone else sober too. And that's fabulous, but they may not be able to help that person with the fact that they were raped when they were seven and that's why they drink or that's why they sexually act out. And when we get to that level, yeah, it it requires our field to be mutually informed.
1: Right. I agree with that. I was just, when I said sides, I meant the silos what's happened in both of those um, areas.
0: Well, there were good reasons for that. And you and I, Christine, we had nothing to do with, had we been around, we wouldn't have silos. <laughs> I <laughs> promise that there were. Yeah.
1: I would hope not. And I think there are breaks that are going on in the silos. There's, there's a lot more um, fertilization and cross integration right now, you know, and and I've been saying in my lectures, you know, you mentioned by talking about um, the different stages and the starting point being safety, mm-hmm. I also talk in my lectures that working with complex trauma is much like doing addiction treatment, you know, it follows uh, the same phases and, you know, it's dealing with the psychological material, but it's also much like giving up a substance or a process and then having to deal with what's left.
0: And changing belief systems.
1: Yes. And changing cognitions and belief systems and, you know, the stereotypes that go along. Just last week, I had a very, what was a painful conversation with um, a family member who, it was during the Kavanaugh hearings, and she actually disclosed to me that she had been sexually assaulted. And she had, had an alcohol a very bad alcohol problem at the time. She's been sober, clean and sober for 31 years, but she has not addressed the trauma. And when she told me about it, she was very dismissive. And I said, my goodness, that is, is really serious. And she said, oh, no, I was just an old drunk. And mm. her, she still hasn't worked through the issue of she was a drunk woman who was extremely vulnerable and mm. she was taken advantage of,
0: but she's still blaming herself. Well, it's interesting that you – I'd love to get into that actual topic, Christine, about – in particular about women blaming themselves. And, and I'd love, maybe you could give me a little off the cuff advice. I know you're semi-retired, but I could use a little bit of help. As you know, I've been doing some online groups and I've been uh, free uh, once a week on intherooms.com, once a week on sexandrelationshiphealing.com. And I unexpectedly have a lot of women and I hadn't expected it because I do work on sex and love addiction. And I thought I would mostly have men or women who were dealing with men with a problem. What I quickly realized doing work online is that women prefer to go to 12 step meetings, prefer to be in social interactions and seem to feel more safe online. And I understand that, you know, I wouldn't want to be a woman walking into a church basement where there are 35 men talking about sex. If I was a woman with a sexual problem, so I get that. But what's coming up, Dr. Courtois, is it comes up again and again and again. Is the woman who says to me, I have dated every loser in town. You know, I'm 29 or I'm 35 or I'm 47. And I'm tired of dating dating alcoholics. I'm tired of dating drug addicts. I'm tired of dating losers. And I don't think I'm going to date or have sex ever again. <laughs> and I hear this from 41, 37. I mean, really, such a young age to give up on love. And I guess I wondered if you can shed some light on for me and for some of the women who have these issues on on women who persistently and consistently get fascinated with men that they think are going to be their their amazing you know light and then it turns out that that guy's drinking using uses them abuses them walks out and then they say well i just maybe i'm not worthy of love is what these women end up concluding Mm -hmm. what do you think about what are they really dealing with do you think
1: Well, I heard a wonderful statement by a survivor, a longtime survivor who talked about that. And she said she came to understand that her picker of men was broken Mm. and that she didn't know who was a safe man from who was an unsafe man. I think you're referencing something else that hasn't been talked about enough, and that is in um, mixed 12-step meetings, there is oftentimes men who are substituting one addiction for another or are you know welling their their own cravings by seeking out relationships and getting into relationships even though
0: well just just a thought. I would say, we have a word for this in 12-step programs. We call it 13th stepping. Yep. When you are sober and you decide to start hitting on people and having sex with them in order to start feeling better rather than actually dealing with yourself. But I will tell you this to I didn't interrupt Dr. Courtois, because equal, equal numbers, men and women, women go into meetings and they hit on guys and they flirt with guys. And this is not just a male issue. This is actually... I, and I'll say this to you just as an aside, you may know this, but in my sex addiction programs, I will have a female therapist work with men, no problem. They like her boobs, they like her this and that. They talk about it, we confront it, we get it out of the way, we move on. Mm-hmm. In the women's programs, I can't have a male therapist. Mm-hmm. Because a woman will obsess and dream and think and love and isn't he cute, isn't he that. And they won't be present for the whole darn thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just wanted to put up a voice in this particular area. Right. I see women struggle too.
1: Right, right. Well, I've, I've seen that um, in my treatment program. Our male therapists at times were just driven uh, to distraction themselves because, you know, They couldn't get the focus back on the the treatment process because there was so much obsession with being in a room with a man, whether the man was experienced as someone who was relatively safe or not. But getting back to the point, you know, I think that there is, is often a dynamic that's going on that has to do with shame. It has Mm. to do with the stigma um, of being an addicted or substance-using woman, particularly being drunk, an old drunk. And I think that that is contributory to, you know, women's low self-esteem and not having enough esteem to pick um, someone who will be, you know, genuinely have good mental health and be kind to them.
0: Well, you uh, you didn't use this word, but I'm going to use this word, discernment. Uh-huh. That you use the word picker. I agree with you. I think some of these women and some men too end up because of their early experiences and because of what they learned about love and touch and connection, it was wrong. What they learned wasn't healthy. And now they're seeking something that isn't healthy, but what they want is healthy. They just don't know how to get it. Right.
1: Agree with you on that choice of words. I, you know, discernment is another way of this was just a colloquial way that this client said it, but I think that that is also another major treatment focus, whether it's trauma and especially interpersonal trauma or whether it's addictions. You know, there are so many betrayals that have occurred interpersonally. And also, when we look at clients' history and we look at their attachment history and the relational trauma in their primary relationships resulting in whatever attachment style they have, usually a, a style that is insecure and a style that was not modeled in terms of security and responsiveness and kindness. So they don't know what they're looking for.
0: Well but I wanna play I wanna play client for a minute with you, if you don't mind, because I hear your words and I think, well, I know those were from graduate school, but I want to say it as someone I work with would say it, which is, you know what? I I had a difficult, my dad beat me around a little bit. My mom, you know, was in and out with my dad and they drank a lot, but so what? I'm 35 years old now and I can make my own decisions and I'm an adult. And um, I don't see how, you know, and they fed me and they clothed me and they were always there if there was really an emergency. So I don't understand how that can have anything to do with who I am today. Mm-hmm. And that is what I think, I don't know about you, but I hear that a lot when some folks walk in the door.
1: I do too. Well, I try to make clear that I'm not trying to demonize parents and no right. problem is going to be um, in the direction of hundred percent, you know, all good or hundred percent all bad. You know, chances are. So there are likely to be a lot of ambivalent feelings and there's likely to be a lot of protectiveness and denial um, because there is caring and attachment for the parent and with the parent.
0: Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction or co-occurring drug problems, seeking integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. But you therapists, you just always want to blame parents, right? I hear that. You know, you just want to blame my childhood. Well, that was 30 years ago. I'm an adult. I'm making my own decisions now. I don't see what all that has to do with Today.
1: Well, I might say something like, it's interesting that you experience this as blame, because what we're trying to do is sort of sort out how these things influenced you. And this is not about blame. Your parents probably did the best they could. But that doesn't mean that some of the things that happened to you weren't very influential in what you're doing.
0: But isn't that typical of you, therapist, Christine? I'm being, I'm loving with you, you know, my friend. But I'm just thinking of, but isn't that typical of you, therapist? The minute I talk about a problem I have now and that I'm dealing with, and I have been dealing with for a while as an adult, you want to point at my parents. I don't. I haven't even talked to my parents in five years. What, what possible? I mean, yeah, I think Dr. Cordova, what I'm asking is, how do you help people make that connection when they are, you know, like how do you explain it to them that what happened to them might have something to do with today, and and that that we're not aware of all of our choices consciously. And how do you explain that to someone who really hasn't been in the world that we live in and, and just sort of brushes that off and says, well, that was then, this is now?
1: Well, I, you know, whether I bring it up at the time or, or register and or bring it up later, the fact of that client says, I haven't seen my parents in five years, says something. Mm. Um, and, you know, I would, I would be talking to them again about not trying to demonize, but that what, what we found is that Things that happen in childhood and especially childhood adversities can have very profound and lifelong effects, and they're often very, very disconnected. There's not a recognition that there's a connection.
0: The effects are just The effects from what happened to me then are disconnected from what hap- What I'm doing now.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I also, you know, I try to put a little humor in my my treatment and say I'm not Freud, and I'm not trying to say everything goes back to childhood but significant events in childhood can have a profound effect and maybe we should take a look at those
0: and so then i'm going to take it a step further and say okay even if i say as a client of yours i had a okay i had a rotten childhood i had all these awful things happen and you know dad was mentally ill and mom was drinking and -and so-and-so was having affairs and it was very unstable and i was a latchkey kid and but what i can't do anything about that now i can't fix that now that happened then what's the point in talking about it now
1: Well, the point is that those events had influence on you. And no, you can't change them. But all you can do is understand how they impacted you maybe at the time and are related to what's going on with you today. And from my experience and working in this area for quite a while, you know, I would suspect that it's had influence on you. But Mm. I'm also not saying that you know, it's um, something that can't be worked on or something that you can't feel better about or that you don't have control over the future. I mean, we're talking, we're, we're wanting to deal with you holistically and say, you know, you decide how you go forward. But what we know is a lot of these events often have profound impact that is not realized.
0: It's interesting to hear you uh, as you talk, and I just, I love listening. I listen to you all day long, and I'm thinking uh, how different this kind of language is from the addiction field. And maybe this is part of the separation, because when I work with addicts, we talk about take responsibility, being fully accountable. Mm-hmm. Even though things ha- happened to you in the past, you're still responsible for your behavior as an adult. Right. And I think it's easy to not hear that in what you're saying, even though I know that's not what you're saying.
1: Right. And I definitely would get to that. It's not that you know you asked about making the connection,
0: right? I'm using you, Doctor Vertar, right now to guide people who know nothing about therapy or treatment to understand the basics of how their past might have affected them, or why. Uh, really, I'm using you right here as a as a reason to help people understand why they might want to seek help for things that they thought they could figure out.
1: Right. Well, let me take this opportunity to to talk about um, some of the research that has been. Extremely profound, and you know, it's making us look at a history of childhood. And I, I keep using this word deliberately, adversity, which is all kinds of events broadly defined. But um, we now have a, a you know, a, a second generation study that's going on called the Childhood Adversity Adverse Events Study. And you know, the results of that study, which were of a cohort, a group of people who were in. Who were covered by Kaiser Insurance was to look at the effect of various, and at the time it was only 10, childhood adversity, adverse experiences on later both mental health, but specifically medical health consequences. And much to the surprise of the researchers, they did not expect to find what they did, found that the larger the number of these events, the more at risk an individual is for a variety of problems over the lifespan starting with medical problems, but also uh, looking at mental health problems and even one's lifespan, the length of um, one's life. Mm. And since the early studies, there have been a lot more, and significantly they found the same thing. They're reinforcing the same thing. And so it gives us something to go on that, you know, it's not just the person, the individual person and their character it's what happened to them. And as you know, I wrote a little book called It's Not You, It's What Happened to You.
0: It's the best book.
1: <laughs> Thank you. To help people understand that the events that happen to them can have a, a very significant impact. But as you're pointing out, and I am in total agree with agreement with you, that regardless of what happened to you, you're still the one who's responsible for your own personal healing.
0: And that's why you and I are in the right place with this work, because Uh the challenge for the addiction people has always been, oh, well, they're just saying just when you work out your childhood, when you work out your issues, you won't be a drunk anymore. Mm -hmm. And alcoholism and alcohol treatment says, no, you got to deal with the alcoholism separately because it it is its own dysfunction. And then you can look at whatever you want with the tools and the skills you have of a sober alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And the therapy field would look in the other direction, say, well, see all that trauma, see all those issues. I'm sure that person will stop drinking and using or whatever it is as soon as they work through all those issues in a few years. Mm -hmm. And you know, AA is like, why don't you stop drinking today? And so when you and I say that you are fully accountable for your behavior today as an adult, even though the decisions you made as an adult may reflect on bad learning experiences you had when you were younger, that's a whole different take on it. And I love, and I agree with you. And I just want to reinforce this idea and help people, you know, a lot of us shame ourselves. Oh, I'm just a stupid effing drunk, or I just ruin my family's life with my sexual behavior. Or I am not, I must not be worth loving because I always meet the wrong guy. Mm-hmm. And if you can say to that person, well, you are responsible for the choices you made, but maybe you didn't have the best teachers. You know, maybe you're not good at speaking French because you didn't learn very well from a good French teacher. Maybe you're not good at tech because you didn't have a computer teacher. So why do you think you would be good at healthy relationships if you didn't have a good, healthy relationship teacher? And in those cases, it's our caregivers.
1: Right. It gets more complicated when it's family members and because exactly Mm. because of what you said earlier you know well i love my parents well my parents weren't that bad so along with the message of the past we have to give the message that you can still love your parents again um maybe they were were not good role models um, but these are things that you can learn and these are the things that we can help you with in treatment
0: And not always, but I I find, I don't know about you, Christine, but I found maybe I've worked with less trauma, so maybe 70% of the time that, you know, we are also often over time able to come to terms with who our parents really were, Mm -hmm. that they were loving people who tried their best to care about us, but they too had deficits, they too had limits and they could only do what they knew. Mm -hmm. And even though it was the best they could do, it just may not have been enough. Nobody has to demonize a parent, but we can accept that maybe they didn't have what we needed and we need to keep learning it now as adults.
1: Well, Rob, we can underscore that point, too, because, um, you know, the literature is also finding out that a parent's history is very important about their ability to parent. And yes. you go back and do genograms and you look at trauma and you look at predictions, you're likely to find both.
0: So Christine, and you know, I'll say this to you as me, Rob, Dr. Rob personally. So are you saying that the fact that my mom had an affair, that my dad was seeing prostitutes, that might da- that might have something to do with how my issues with sex and relationships? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked. I think you're right. It can be highly
1: influential, but but also looking even more broadly than that, what was their attachment history? How uh, what did they get from their parents? Were they traumatized and You know, I really think, at least from my perspective, I think the addictions have been really denied in terms of their influence on the development of trauma. And they're part of what is traumatizing. And it's a really cyclical kind of process. And some people call it an intergenerational dynamic. That Mm -hmm. really needs to be addressed.
0: Think about this, Dr. Courtois, that we have a generation and I'm, you know, I'm very pro-tech and pro this generation and all that, as you know, from my writing and reading. But I'm thinking about this generation that is all about dissociation Mm -hmm. because they're dissociating into relationships that are not in real time. They're dissociating into communities that, I mean, all the fantasy-based connection is in essence a form of dissociation. And what is their favorite drug? Marijuana. (laughs) Marijuana. So this seems to be an era where people want to space out and avoid and distance and not be present and not be connected. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating, really. When you think about if the 1950s is all about drinking and alcoholism and, you know, that a very different desire for a different kind of drug. I'm very interested in why different periods of our culture lean into different drugs and different times. It's just kind of like strikes me and we're in a very dissociative time Mm -hmm. which is what children do by the way folks when they when they're under stress and trauma when they can't tolerate it they will try to space out or dissociate Mm
1: -hmm. well i got an interest i gave a workshop last week and i had interesting um, interactions with a couple of people who were working with children and families primarily and they were talking about trying to get uh, the parents to get their iphones out of their hands so they can make eye contact with their children
0: with this a whole other conversation, because I will say that I, I knew parents who couldn't wait to get their kids in front of Sesame Street no. so that they could go do their own thing. And now they can't wait to get their kids in front of the device to go do their own thing. So, you know, parents desire to have their own space while parenting is not a new issue. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you that, that the degree to which certain parents may use this as a way to not parent their children is just another way that that's trauma is going to play out.
1: You know, attachment studies are really showing how important it is for Parents to make eye contact and to be responsive and to be attuned to their children. And the problem is not having devices, it's how they use the devices and how frequently they're using the devices and whether they're cutting off their eye contact or their responsiveness to their children. So, you know, I think we're we're seeing a lot more of that. Nobody knows what the consequences are going to be, except we don't know. Maybe it's what you're saying is much more detachment.
0: Well, we don't. And I will say to you that you know, it's something that most people don't think about is the tech is going to fix this in part because when virtual reality comes around, um, having put a headset on or two, I never felt like I was in a different room. I felt like I was with that person. And so what happens when the tech leads you to really feeling like you are with someone and you can't tell the difference? Are you really feeling that isolation? It'll be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. But um, Dr. Courtois, tell me just really quickly, because we're going to hopefully do this again sometime soon. Mm -hmm. But first of all, if people wanted to find your work, find you, find any of the information, the amazing information you've been putting out there for so many years, where would they look? We
1: have a website,
0: com. That's C-H-R-I-S-C-O-U-R-T-O-I-S.com. Yes. And about your books, you talked about It's Not You, It's What Happened to You, which I love the title of that book. Is there anything else that you would recommend? And maybe online, are there places if people are experiencing familiarity with the trauma issues you're talking about, are there support groups? Is there information online people can get about childhood trauma, about abuse and how it may affect adult life?
1: Yes, I think that if they just go online and, and Google, for example, um, child trauma and tra- child abuse, they will come up with um, some resources. We need to be um, obviously somewhat careful about that. But there are a lot of resources at this point. And the study that I was mentioning earlier, the Adverse Childhood Events um, Study, has a pretty extensive website about the studies, but also giving resources.
0: How can we find that? Do you have that address?
1: a c e s dot org.
0: Thank you. We will be looking there, um, Dr. Courtois. I, I don't think anyone here could value as much as you as much as I do because through my entire professional career, you have been a, a solid note of, I think, um, clarity and like a finger saying, "Go look over here." <laughs> and we have, and we are. And um, I have one last question for you: If there was a young Christine Courtois, Dr. Courtois, tapping you on the shoulder today in 2018 and saying, I'm getting ready to start my career. What would you say that I really need to do differently or do more of or do in some way that you didn't or that you wish you did or that you want to? What would you say to a young therapist about researching and working in the trauma field? Oh my.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs)
0: Well, I have
1: an awful lot of things that I wish I'd known back then that I had to learn the hard way. And I think there are many of us who have really put our work into writing very deliberately so that the same mistakes or the same ignorance that we had back in the past, um, other professionals don't have to go through today. So I think the biggest thing that a professional who's working in these fields can do is get extensive training and get support. Don't work in isolation. We know that uh, working with trauma can have a very profound impact on the helper, regardless of what aspect of trauma is being worked on. And so we know that anyone who works in the field has to have self-care and support strategies as well as education. Because if you know about these things ahead of time um, and you know what some of the traps might be, you're going to handle them um, a lot differently. So you have to have knowledge um, of the field and, you know, the elements of the field, but also a lot of self-knowledge and a lot of maturity. And you gain that with consultation and mentors and support and more education. So I would urge people to stay very active and, you know, be lifelong learners.
0: I hear people say to me all the time, you know, I'd love to find a good trauma therapist. I'm not sure how to find a good trauma therapist or, you know, I'm not sure what kind of therapy would be best for the trauma I have. Mm -hmm. Do you just, do they just get a therapist and start working or is there some place they could look or... How do they find someone who really kind of knows what they're doing? And that seems to be hard because everyone says, oh, I treat trauma, but how do you know if you've got someone who's worth working with?
1: Well, there's two primary organizations where they can get referrals, which is the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies, which is the acronym is istss.org.
0: ISTSS.org, okay.
1: And the International Society for Trauma. Trauma and dissociation so that's ISSTD and it's tpythond.org and then also your state psychological associations or social work organizations or counselor organizations usually have referral sources by you know specialty area and then i would really advise people to very carefully interview who they're thinking of working with or whose names they found to find out what training and what experience
0: they've had. Yes, they should be able to let you know where they're going to take you and how and what that work's going to look like. Therapy shouldn't be a mystery, at least in the explanation sense. Right. Dr. Christine Courtois, everybody. I wish I could. I don't have a, oh, wait, maybe I have a, dramatic, a drum wall. Let me try that. <laughs> there, that's the best okay, I can awesome. do. <laughs> I wanted applause, but that was best. Anyway, Dr. Courtois, thank you so much. You, it, I've recorded you. You are here for our history to learn from. We will be back to ask you more questions in the very near future. I'm so grateful for every piece of work you've done. Ladies, if you're out there, if you're a woman listening, this is a woman who has done profound, meaningful things for women there is not a women's organization or culture in the, in the healing professions that in some way hasn't been touched by Dr. Courtois' work. Thank you, Dr. Courtois. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.